Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. Hi, everybody. Hi. We're back. We're live. I think I say that every time as if we're not back. <laughs> I know. We, we should tell times. people that we're like not dead. We're here. <laughs> I mean, it kind of felt like I was oh, for a little boy. bit. That's <laughs> it has been a long, it's been two weeks. It's been a long two weeks. Yeah. I got like between work and then a kid that got sick who then climbed into my bed and breathed into my mouth for like three <laughs> straight nights and <laughs> as children do. <laughs> and then I got sick and then I worked again and then, yeah. It's and you were out of town and yeah, it's just been just busy. a whirlwind of things. I don't know what's happening, but I know we'll life get is going up. by we too quick. Get, I know it's already almost the end of the year. I wrote, I had to write a check the other day and I wrote 2017 on the check and I was like, oh, <laughs> what? Not even <laughs> remotely close. I don't know what I was yeah. thinking. Um, well, yeah, I'm excited yeah. to be back. I feel like we have a million mini-sodes just waiting in the wings because so much has happened that's made me really mad. I have to say, let's start with a little good news. My city council and school board elections were awesome, and I wasn't sure what was going to happen. We actually had like pretty good candidates all around for the school board, like no really glaringly obvious problematic people in the suburbs around where I live. There were some real gems, and some of them are now <laughs> sparkling from the seats of the school board. Uh, like, a, a, in one case, there's a suburb just north of where I live where I saw somebody tweeted this, that the best thing you could say about that election is that the young man who was running under an assumed name, hoping people wouldn't find out he had been arrested for threatening to rape um, girls in the locker rooms and shoot up the school the year before. He lost. Oh and gosh. so that was like oh, the big well, relief good, because good, good. other folks <laughs> got on who, um, you know, are really like they ran on an anti-equity platform. They want to ban books. You know, they believe QAnon is real, like all of that stuff. So uh, mm-hmm. what, what happened in your neck of the woods <clears throat> on the second? Um, we did not have we didn't have any school board elections this this time around. Oh, really? I think they were with. Yeah, we didn't have anyone up for it, at least not in my district. They all happened with the general election last time, so I don't think they're up mm-hmm. for re-election at this point. Although, I mean, I think that our school district is um, Clark County in Las Vegas is one of the largest school districts in the country, mm-hmm. probably just behind New York, because for some reason money must be involved somewhere. They refuse to split it up Mm -hmm. into smaller districts. And so it it encompasses like the entire Las Vegas and all surrounding suburbs. It's all in one um, school district. So it's gigantic. Mm -hmm. I think they serve over 300,000 students. Um, And it's just insane. Mm -hmm. And our school board people run the gamut from total like QAnon Trump supporters to super liberal people and so all they do is just I know fight I'm sure they have a great time. I was just going to say like those board meetings They've actually had so like fun. 
Oh, they've had people arrested at the meetings recently. <laughs> they've had to shut some of them down for like threats of violence. They have police at them every time because people cannot control themselves. Um, our superintendent just got voted out mm. at the last school board meeting, which is like a mixed bag because no one loves him. But the reason that people don't love him are so polar opposite oh, that sure. everyone kind of hated to agree that they <laughs> wanted to get rid of him. That's amazing. Uh, that sounds like an um, I mean, job. I loved... Yeah, he did mandate the vaccine for all school district workers, which caused like a huge, huge fight mm -hmm. at a couple of meetings ago. Um, but then it was disgusting. I think I texted you about this because some of the students got up to speak in favor of mandating the vaccine for employees, like as a please protect us kind of thing. And they got literally booed. By adults children. in the audience. <laughs> yes, they, uh -huh. they booed children because uh -huh. um, that's how yeah. these people are. I know we're going to read this book in a like coming up in a future season, but you've probably seen those memes going around comparing the photographs from like the 1950s and 60s of the white moms that came out to like yell at black children coming to school. Yeah. yeah. And people mm -hmm. saying like, oh, they're their daughters. And granddaughters are like keeping that tradition alive, you know, coming to oh, yeah. all of these school room meetings, threatening to burn books, whatever, whatever the issue is. Um, yeah. Anything else that's been on your news radar, pop culture radar that you want to put on oh, our list? Gosh. No, I mean, I, I don't know what exactly is up in our lineup next, but I feel like this whole white moms thing has to come. <laughs> has to come soon because I'm so full of rage about it all. I don't know. Rage and despair and just Disgust. overwhelming, like, yeah, like gross. I don't even, I don't even want to share the world with people. Like the white moms coming <laughs> I don't to school know. stuff, that group. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we definitely will. I think we should do our next season just on white women in school because there's a lot of ways that they get involved that are certainly not helping anybody and yeah. are doing a lot of harm. So maybe that's what we do next, like a belated yeah. back to school season. Um, I just <laughs> listened to a really great episode of the daily podcast that was mm -hmm. going over the, the life and times of Kristen cinema, like trying to unpack the enigma uh, that she is and like what where the hell she came yeah, from I, and i actually i don't even want to say anything more about it just if people are listening to the daily definitely check out that episode i did not know about her background as like a very um strong progressive activist like organizer and activist which makes her i i honestly was already so frustrated with her and then learning more about her only added fuel to that fire so i definitely want to learn more about her. And then we had a listener send us a note about a professor in Canada, a white woman that just got outed. She had been passing herself off as a native woman, a first nations mm. woman. And in her picture, the, the guardian has an article about it that the listener linked to. And she's rocking like 12 inch long feather earrings, like so, so obscenely Rachel Dolezaling up the scene yeah. so we we will definitely get into the the 
like cultural appropriation and white women passing as women of color, because that it's like a news story every few months. There's like another white mm-hmm. academic or, or white um, public figure who has yeah. been claiming membership in cultural communities that they're not a part of. And that is a problem. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. We need to get back into the mini because I know we have sent each other back, to back it. and forth some articles and videos that were just like, we need to do this. We need to do this. And then we're like, yeah, I can record two weeks from now. I know. I know. We will be back <laughs> in it. I promise. Well, today we are, we are working our way through women of color and the reproductive rights movement by Jennifer Nelson. I am really enjoying this book a lot. We're a little more than halfway through um, the chapters that we're going to talk about today focus on Black uh, feminists and reproductive rights and Black nationalist and Black Panther Party campaigns against reproductive rights. It, although it's a lot more complicated than that, I think. Um, yeah, we'll yeah. Super complicated. That. There was a paragraph that I kind of highlighted as being a good transition from what we have been talking about with the red stockings and like the white feminist movement. And it's contrast yeah. to the black feminist movement and their concerns at the Great. time. It's at the end of the feminist, um, white feminist movement chapter. So page 53, if anybody has it, but it's, she says, and this is the author is Jennifer Nelson. For those who haven't looked it up yet, get on Amazon or your local bookseller and request it. Um, But she said the right to choose an abortion changed the world for many women. Suddenly, they were able to pursue sexual pleasure without fear of being forced into an undesirable marriage or bearing an unwanted child. The young women who made up the Red Stockings and other radical feminist groups found themselves pursuing careers, sexual lives, and relationships not fully possible until reproductive control became a fact. On the other hand... Other women's lives were less profoundly affected by the legislation of abortion. Poor women and women of color found themselves with problems that abortion could not solve. These women were unable to have children because of poverty, sterilization abuse, or even coerced abortion. Mm. For them, abortion was never a priority in the same way. And so I think that's kind of the focus then of the next couple of chapters is just that kind of disconnect Mm -hmm. um, between the goals of white feminism and the black feminist movement, which still is an issue. Happening. Well, there was another sentence I jotted down that I thought was so good. Um, a quote from Jennifer Nelson, who said, in all of this discussion of black women's fertility, black women's voices on how best to control their own reproduction often get lost. And I, I thought that was really the crux of this middle portion of the book was how the white women we talked about last time, the red stockings and other white feminist groups were so laser focused on abortion. And it, it took them a while to expand their platforms. I think that was something I took away from this section too, that that the black women who were speaking out against this narrow, restricted view of reproductive rights actually did influence the white women, many of the white feminist leaders that were organizing. It took it took a while for them to, to listen, um, but that there was mm-hmm. more of an expansive view taken at some point by some. And the same thing happened, it sounds like, with the men within black nationalist movements, black liberation movements is initially taking pretty hard stances against um, abortion or against reproductive rights and then coming around mm-hmm. because of the organizing and because of the, the ways that black women were able to convince them that they were wrong. Not everyone, certainly, but yeah. um, I thought that that quote that just thinking about black women's voices not being listened to for their own lives was 
like everything we've learned about this entire time we've been doing this podcast, it could apply to so many, so many different issues. And at some point I've gone down rabbit holes again, and I have a bunch of (laughs) black women to talk about that. I I'm really, really excited to, to tell you more about their backgrounds if you don't know it. So, yeah. Um, I also, I also have a bulleted list, just what the fuck moments, because there were Mm -hmm. so many parts of this book that I had like exclamation marks and just WTF in the margins, like things I, that completely stunned me. Yeah. Did did you have moments like that? Yeah. Oh yeah. I definitely had them. I had, I mean, I think my overall, I mean, we've talked about this before, just this realization of things that you didn't think about that you hadn't um, conceptualized in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this just brought back some of those moments for me because one of the books I we're going to discuss at some point when we discuss white feminism mm-hmm. is uh, Mickey Kendall's book, mm-hmm. I believe hood feminism. Mm-hmm. And just listening to that book was a huge awakening for me because she talks about so many of the issues that are brought up in here mm-hmm. as being feminist issues, like um, housing, healthcare, living wages, like subsidized childcare, and talking all about all of those as feminist issues is honestly not anything that I had thought about as a feminist issue. I had like a much more n- narrow um understanding of feminism, which was obviously influenced by my whiteness and my exposure to a white feminist kind of framework. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do like this idea and I think it's really important. And Jennifer Nelson brings it in again that she says that, you know, black women um, argued further that white feminists need to forge an inclusive reproductive rights agenda that synthesizes anti-poverty politics, welfare rights, access to reproductive and basic health care if they want to include women of color in their movement. Yeah, there um, was another quote very similar that she writes, but black women proclaimed that improved access to total health care, a living wage, adequate housing and subsidized child care all needed to be present before a woman could know she had total control over her fertility. It makes so much sense. Yeah, of course it does. Like, it's not just a matter of fallopian tubes and that's it. Right. It's not just a matter of a fertilized egg or not a fertilized egg, which is so much of the argument, I think, when you get into the whole quote unquote pro-life, pro-family movement. It's like, are are we pro-life or are we Mm pro-birth? Because that's what a lot of, I think, the abortion argument on both sides just stops at. I think that like, is birth or not birth. That, yes, exactly. Like it's it. I kept thinking, like, wow, so much of abortion arguments now just seem like noise when you read mm-hmm. it through the perspective of black women of these of these women in particular. I think, and the arguments that they were making, especially in the sixties and seventies and eighties, just how much of the debate misses the entire point, which is that people don't have access to healthcare, housing, nutrition, you know, all of the things that you need to have a healthy life in the first place. So there, um, let's maybe do just like a quick recap. I, I don't know that to be honest, like a lot of it was super interesting, but I think some of it went deeper down into like Elijah Muhammad's sexism than we probably even want to talk mm-hmm. about. He's, um, Elijah Muhammad is the founder of the nation of Islam and was a black nationalist and 
um, took positions on, you know, like a woman's place is mm-hmm. in the home, like a, a very, even though it was a very radical racial politics, like a very conservative gender politics. Um, and some of the Black Panthers, it sounds like, had similar positions, like a real, um, like a disregard for women in leadership roles and framing abortion as the same as genocide of black people and also pointing out ways that women having access to reproductive rights would somehow emasculate them. Like it's somehow Mm -hmm. anti, I don't want to say anti-male, but it like their machismo was attacked by women having access to reproductive rights. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it, and the black women pushed back on that. I loved, I, I want, if there is a podcast about Shirley Chisholm, someone please tell us because I want to learn everything I possibly can about her, but she's um, a black woman who ran for president and like just amazing person on many, many fronts, but she called the debates and this was a kind of risky position for her to take politically, but she said that, saying that abortion is automatically equivalent with genocide and that black people like black women should have as many children as they can. She called it male rhetoric for male ears. And, and then also mm-hmm. posed this question to black men, why is the death of black women from illegal abortion, which I think the book said was at least four times as high for black women as it was for white women in particular. Um, Why is the death of black women from illegal abortion less genocidal than the abortion of black fetuses? Like, why do you care so little about black women's maternal health? Which of course Mm. was part of the issue as well was, was lack of that. I think the other part that I kept saying in the, in the margins when I was reading through the, the black men's, many of the black men's positions in these different organizations is that, their position, I understood where they were coming from. Frances Ruffin is one of the black feminists that that Jennifer Nelson writes about. And she said that for Frances Ruffin, black people reasonably suspected that white paranoia about black political organizing and violence motivated federal government sponsorship of fertility control program, programs. Like, yeah, they weren't wrong we know to that's be paranoid true. about yeah. that, right? Yeah. Like, that's yeah. absolutely right. And then um, Roy Innes who is the national director of CORE, um, who's, who ended up concluding, like, therefore, we shouldn't have birth control. It's like I disagreed with his conclusions, but I totally understood where he was coming from. He said, overpopulation is a white man's problem. In his limited space, he squanders an extremely disproportionate share of the world's resources. Still true. Mm-hmm. The relevant mm-hmm. question is not, if you have all those babies, how will you care for them? But why can't we all get enough to care for our children? It was wrong to prevent births because it dealt with overpopulation rather than capitalism and imperialism. Capitalism is the problem, not too many people. That last quote actually comes from a Black Panther Party article in the early 1970s, but it's like the same, the same basic logic. Like the real mm-hmm. problem is capitalism. The real problem is imperialism. And the real problem is white people taking up way more of their share of resources than they should, which I yep. totally agree with all of that. And I think the black women's position that were written about in the book is that, yes, all of that is true. Also, I would still like the birth control pill. <laughs> like I right. still, I still would like to be able to family plan and have really great choices available to me right. and not have to worry about it. Yeah. And I think that's what like black women are arguing 
throughout this time and like trying to push that it's not an either or that it was both things for them. And it just, I think highlighted the struggle and this all just points back to the idea of intersectionality that we've discussed many times before is that black women are fighting on two ends against the racism of white people, but then also sexism from within their own race and from without it. And they are just facing even more than either side by itself is giving any sort of um, credence to, which just makes it all the more complex, I think, for them. But yeah, they were, I think that idea is brought up many times. Like there was this very pronatalist idea within um, the black power movement. And the idea she says is the more black people, the argument went, the more likely blacks could throw off the yoke of racism. But you said black women were concerned about ending poverty so they could raise their children in a healthy environment. There was a quote for, from mm-hmm. a black writer, Tony Bambara that I mm-hmm. highlighted in here too, where she says, it is a noble thing, the rearing of warriors for the revolution. I can find no fault with this idea. I do, however, find fault with the notion that dumping the pill is the way to do it. You don't prepare yourself for the raising of super people by making yourself vulnerable. Chance fertilization, chance support, chance tomorrow, nor by being celibate until you stumble across the right stock to breed with. You prepare yourself by being healthy and confident, by having options that give you confidence, by getting yourself together, by being together enough to attract together cat, whose notions of fatherhood rise above the Disney caliber of man in the world and woman (laughs) in the home. By being committed to the new consciousness, by being intellectually and spiritually and financially self-sufficient to do the right thing, you prepare yourself by being in control of yourself. The pill gives the woman, as well as the man, some control. Simple as that. Which I I think... I wrote clapping on the sides of that one because it was so beautiful. (laughs) And I love, like, you want to attract a together cat. Like, the language is so great. In fact, she had this other quote that was so good. Um... Again, this is Tony Bambara. Time, money, energy could be invested in taking care of her health so that the champion she plans to raise isn't faced from the jump with the possibility of brain damage because of her poor nutrition could be invested in a safe home so the baby isn't hazarded by lead poison in the falling plaster and by rats in the acquiring of skills and knowledge and a groovy sense of the self so the child isn't menaced by stupidity and other child abuse practices so common among people grown ugly and dangerous from being nobody for so long. I mean, ah, oh, just so beautiful. And yep. I groovy sense of the self. I just want to like paint that on a wall in bright orange, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's incredibly powerful how they're able to just cut through everybody's bullshit. Like not mm-hmm. that, not that you're like the yes. And why, do, why do you think both and is so much harder for people, especially for people with any kind of structural advantage or position of power, why do you think we get caught up in like either or thinking so much quicker? Why is that both and thinking so hard? Uh, I was just going to say, because it, it's easier. I don't know. It's just easier to grab hold onto one thing and to polarize it and to see it as black and white. It's answers are harder to find in mm-hmm the grays, I think, because you do have to like, you have to come to more compromises. You have to be willing to see, you know, where abortion practices and sterilization 
are not just about like convenience and choice where they can be abused. And there's, Mm. it's a gradation of when you step over a line with those things. And I don't, I don't think our brains like dealing with that. It's so much easier to deal in black and white. But I, I mean, I think that's what, like one of the things I'm taking away from everything we've been learning about is how brilliantly and seamlessly it seems like, women of color in particular are able to do that (laughs) and that white women struggle with it and men struggle with it. And Mm -hmm. I know I'm, I know I'm painting with like incredibly broad strokes here. Obviously there are exceptions to that on either side. But I, I feel like it has to have something to do with your lived experience and, and that in some ways, like my, the difficulty in both and like the clunkiness that, it, I feel when I when I push myself to think that way, um, I, I just I I think it's a product of how I've lived. I I mean I and I'm embarrassed. Not embarrassed is probably the wrong word, but like I'm frustrated by it because mm-hmm. I know that the both and thinking is better. It's it's rooted in fact. I mean it's I just am so inspired by the women that we're reading about who were able to think in more sophisticated, complex ways than just kind of like good, bad, you, that, Mm -hmm. this, the other, like intersectionality (laughs) could only have been a concept created by queer black women, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's not something Mm -hmm. that a white lady at a Tupperware party is going to have the idea for. Right. Right. Well, uh, as you say, it's just the, it's the lived experience. If you don't have that lived experience, it doesn't, it doesn't stand out until you put yourself in other people's shoes, which is why things like, you know, reading and travel and putting yourself outside of your comfort zone are so important. I don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel like so many people are not willing to do that these days. And we see that so much in like the current political system, like Mm. people refusing to encounter hard histories and truths and just Mm. go absolutely losing their minds over it. Like you Um, can be proud to be an American and you can still acknowledge and pay respects to people who've been harmed by our government and, and the ways that, that the United States is structured, has been structured. Like, both things can be, that's a good example of like a both and like, yeah, I'm not asking you to spit on the flag when I mm-hmm. teach you about the history of racism, you know, that right. those aren't equivalents. That's a false equivalent. So yeah, I, I just am really marveling at their, like the women in particular that were in this chapter, their ability to cut through it and then to do so with, like such energy and love and humor sometimes too. There was a poet. Do you remember this poem that was in the book? Yes. Um, yes, I know. By Kay Lindsay, a black feminist writer. And it mm-hmm. goes, I'm not one of those who believes that an act of valor for a woman need take place inside her. My womb is packed in mothballs and I hear that winter will be mild. Anyway, I gave birth twice and my body deserves a medal for that, but I never got one mainly because they thought I was just answering the call of nature. But now that the revolution needs numbers, motherhood got a new position five steps behind manhood. And I thought sitting in the back of the bus went out with Martin Luther King. 
Yeah. It was really. <sighs> yeah. I also highlighted that one. And then I liked, you know, the explanation that at that time, the civil rights struggle was becoming more and more gendered. Like there was more of a mm-hmm. black masculinity um, that you were bringing up earlier that came into it that, you know, they had to fight against this thought that sexism um, made them stronger, mm-hmm. that this mm-hmm. whole, you know, juxtaposing masculinity against feminine, 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 I can't talk, femininity. <laughs> Holy moly. Um, (laughs) was like part of their, part of their, the way they were defining themselves. But that said other black women um, critiqued this movement and the participants in it. And they believe that sexism of the black power movement actually weakened it, which I think, obviously. Yeah. Well, Well, and one, some of the stories I'm going to tell you in a little bit, rabbit hole stories, um, it show that like when black women, when, when, male leaders either in black power movement or the new left movements pushed women in particular black women, women of color to the side that, that they stopped flourishing as movements, you know, that they sort of petered out. And it's not a surprise. Mm -hmm. I don't think there was one mention in the book about the black liberation group of Mount Vernon putting out a statement on birth control. I loved that they define Mm -hmm. mothering really broadly as not only caring for children, but fighting to pave the way for a better future for their community. But it, um, Jennifer Nelson did say that they, they, this particular group kind of got into a back and forth, like, don't tell me to have a lot of babies. And then you walk out like playing into the tropes of black men abandoning their family, which of course has way more to do with structural violence against black men, the, criminal justice system targeting them yep. imprisoning them at much higher rates like there's all that's such a complicated issue and there it seemed like there were some people who sort of bought into the tropes on either side of those mm-hmm. arguments and kind of lobbed them at each other but i think for the most part the women we read about were not here for that and thought very structurally and had a really sophisticated analysis and critique of capitalism and imperialism and the criminal justice system, like they had a really good sense and weren't interested in being pitted against each other and didn't see, didn't, didn't see that as being worth pursuing. Yeah. Like they were super inclusive. Right. Right. They they talk about Frances Beale, who was um, yeah. part of the black women's liberation committee and a black feminist who denounced sexism for sure. Um, and she argued that black women could not give up power in order to empower their black brothers. Rather, they needed to be full participants in the black struggle to end racist oppression. Um, they needed to empower themselves by addressing both racism and sexism was her argument. Um, mm-hmm. But then they also talk about how like many black women shied away from the white feminist movement because they feared that there would be a split um over their loyalism, either to their sex or their race, mm-hmm. if they were mm-hmm. siding with white feminism and their commitment was stronger to ending racial oppression. Um, and they preferred to address sexism among black liberationists without the intervention of whites, she mm-hmm. said, which mm-hmm. I think is a valid point too. Like yeah, for sure. they, they needed to answer that within their own group and not have it be, you know, 
an abandonment, I think, is the way they mm-hmm. saw it, of mm-hmm. of the men. Like, they did have legitimate arguments against the men in power that were promoting that idea, but they also didn't want to align themselves with white women. Yeah, which I get. Yeah. Do you want yeah. to learn a little bit more about Francesca? Yes, tell, tell me um, more. I, I watched a little bit of this documentary, She's Beautiful and She's Angry. Have you ever seen that or Mm-mm. heard of it? It's no. apparently the first documentary about second wave feminism. And so now I want to go back okay. and watch the whole thing. But I just watched clips of Frances Beale um, interviewed. And in the documentary, they talk about um, second wave feminism. And it, from the parts that I watched anyway, we're really focused on women of color and queer women and then the crossover between those two groups as well which i think is something that's really striking a lot of these women have have some things in common but they most of them lived um in other countries for a while and so their movement was also very international um many of them lived in france um some of them had ties to cuba so just like a very global perspective of all these issues that also i think was much more sophisticated than I mean, again, I feel like I have like baby brain when it comes to organizing and social movements, like the levels that they are thinking at and the, the, it's like the difference between like Neo in the matrix, being able to see all of the numbers, like scanning in front of him, you know, just seeing everything and someone not even knowing that they're in a computer game. (laughs) Like that's how I feel (laughs) like, uh, I just, it's, it, it feels, it just feels so hard to have to juggle all of it at the same time and they just do it so beautifully anyway she grew up in binghamton new york her mother was russian jewish and her father was black and native american she's like a very very light-skinned black woman and she experienced racism early on as well as anti-semitism and sexism she attended the university of wisconsin which is my alma mater and i want to know Mm -hmm. if they are properly honoring her um and then she did work with the student nonviolent coordinating committee she lived in france for several years had two kids um, ended up getting divorced but came back to the united states while she was in france she studied at the sorbonne and got involved in efforts to end colonial domination in algeria so being able to Mm. even think about imperialism imperialism linked to racism, capitalism, all of these other things. And that really sharpened her political consciousness. She wrote one of the like preeminent books on black feminism called double jeopardy to be black and female. And then the Mm. journal or the, the magazine for the um, third world women's Alliance that she helped organize and the black women's liberation committee that came before it was called triple Mm -hmm. jeopardy, which Mm -hmm. dealt with racism, sexism and capitalist exploitation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And she basically called out militant black men that took these very sexist positions. She insulted them by calling them white and middle class because they were enforcing (laughs) unequal gender roles and expected black women to really serve as like their their primary function was to have babies. And she. Yeah didn't agree with that. She um, edited the Black Woman's Voice for the National Council of Negro Women. She focused on abortion rights and sterilization abuse. She was part of the defense of Angela Davis. She was involved in anti-war efforts during the Vietnam War um, and just a a really prolific writer. Um, So that is Frances Beale. Frances Beale. Yes. You want to know more? 
Yeah, that's so what much more. Um, <laughs> yes, I do. Um, there were a couple who were re- interesting. There's one I, re- I just cannot wait to tell you about. Tony Bambara. Um, she mm-hmm. was born Miltona Merkin Cade at birth and then renamed herself um, at six, changed her name to Tony. And then when she was older, she added the last name Bambara after finding that name in some of her great grandmother's things, thinking it might be a family name. Like hmm. not a name from enslavement, but a you know a name from before. Yeah. She was born in Harlem in 1939. Her she was really influenced. Okay, I have by, to interrupt you really quick because you said yeah. 1939, and I just read this meme, and I feel like this is going to put oh, things no. into perspective. That said, <laughs> have you realized that the difference between 2021 and 1980 is the same number of years as 1980 and 1939? which is what we talk about so many times like this is all so much closer than it seems like you think 1939 and you think that was forever (laughs) old oldie times no no as much time has passed between now and 1980 and we were born in 1980 1980 1980 is our year next oh my god isn't that crazy oh i know well now i just want to drink (laughs) <laughs> that's it uh, but i also feel more connected i feel oh, more totally connected to yes. tony you know like this yes. is we're not that far apart no and none sure. of this history like actually so much of it happened in the 70s and 80s and i was like oh my god yeah. we were baby like we were alive yeah. this overlaps with our lifetimes even and yeah. there's just so yeah no i think you're right that's actually good but i am feeling old today so here we yeah. go okay yeah. <laughs> um so she was born in 1939 um, there in New York, in Harlem in particular, as she was growing up, Marcus Garvey was there, um, like early black nationalism, nation of Islam, pan-Africanist, communist, like super, super diverse, rich intellectual traditions in, in Harlem. And then of course, like incredible jazz music and art. And so she's like raised in all of that. She also studied in Paris and in Florence had different appointments at different universities. She, um, in the seventies traveled to Cuba, which was not allowed and Vietnam not allowed. Those were communist countries to research women, to, to study what women were doing there and to connect with them, which I thought was just incredible. Um, and wrote about, wrote about all of that really beautiful writer. Um, let's see there. Oh gosh, there's just so many, um, Margaret Sloan is someone else. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a ton, but I really wanted to make sure we had time to talk about Florence Kennedy. Okay. And so I'm going to send you a picture right now of Florence Kennedy, and I want you to describe it for our listeners. I just texted it to you. Okay. Hopefully you have your phone right there. I didn't check. I do. I have it. Okay. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> this is amazing. Yes. Um, so, so she's in like a cowgirl get up, like leather vest with a cowboy cowgirl hat, um, big old belt buckle, and then giving the middle finger with her <laughs> other hand on her hip. And like a giant beaming smile. Yeah, huge like, smile. Couldn't be happier <laughs> in her like all leather outfit. Yeah. Yes. That's great. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's awesome. So she's Flo. That's what everyone called her, apparently Florence Kennedy. And she wore this leather cowboy hat, cowgirl hat everywhere. Like literally every single picture I found of her, she's wearing some variation of like matching body to toe 
like Western gear. And then she also had pink sunglasses she would wear. She, mm. um, in 1974, People Magazine called her the biggest, loudest, and indisputably the rudest mouth on the battleground where feminist activists and radical politics join in mostly common cause, which she loved them calling her that. She thought that was great. She, another quote from her, never hesitate to be bizarre. Marshmallow throwing is a good technique. Always try to have fun. Uh, and a lot of her activism has this like impishness to it. That's just re- like this picture perfectly sums up like a gleeful, joyful middle finger. Uh, <laughs> just amazing. So she was born in Kansas City, Missouri, fellow Midwesterner. Her dad was a Pullman porter, like a train car worker and later okay. owned a taxi business. He once um, defended himself against members of the Klan that came to kick him out of the house they bought in a mostly white neighborhood. Um, he defended his family with a shotgun. Um, she was born in 1916, so a little bit older than some of the other women. Mm-hmm. After she graduated from high school, her parents, it sounds like they were like, don't give a fuck parents. Like, you don't bend down to anybody. Like, you don't ever let a teacher make you feel less than you are. Like, they just really encouraged them to live their best lives. She opened a hat shop, which clearly she's a lover of the hats mm-hmm. with um, her sisters. And then she got involved in activism through a boycott against Coca-Cola, a Coca-Cola bottler, because they refused to hire black truck drivers. Then her mom died from cancer. And so she and her sister moved to New York and she people were encouraging her to become a teacher, but she's like, fuck that. I'm going to be a lawyer and enrolled in pre-law courses at Columbia university. Um, then applied to Columbia law school, but was turned down. She threatened to sue. And suddenly they were like, Oh, actually we do have a spot for you. Um, she was the only black woman, one of only eight women actually in the entire class. She graduated in 1951 and then she did set up her own practice, but it wasn't doing particularly well. Um, she did work representing the estates of Billie Holiday and Charlie Parker to recover money that record companies owed them. And she won the cases, but hated it kind of it just jaded her on the whole thing. And she was felt like I couldn't really make enough money. And she just was like annoyed with everyone in the process. And she, at this time, she also got married to a man named Charles Dye, a writer who was 10 years younger than her, who died a few years into the marriage. And this is, this is her quote about him. Anyone who marries a drunk Welshman doesn't deserve sympathy. <laughs> and she said, I have some ancestors who might be able to commiserate with her on that. Yeah, <laughs> and then she said, why, this was her take on marriage. Why would you lock yourself in the bathroom just because you have to go three times a day? So that's, <laughs> that's flow. Isn't that great? Oh, this woman and I went I know. out along. Oh, for sure. So she <laughs> then she basically quits her practice. She stay she stays a lawyer, but she just decides to focus on political activism. So she sets up this group called the Media Workshop that is fighting racism in journalism and advertising. She starts that in 1966, which I thought is just unbelievable and you know clearly still a fight today. She would picket advertising agencies. Um, her catchphrase was when you want to get to the suites, like the executive suites start in the streets. And if you're not living on the edge, then you're taking up space. She then just started representing like activists in, in court. So she represented H. Rap Brown, the civil rights leader. She, in 1968, she sued the Roman Catholic church 
for interfering with abortion rights. In 1969, she organized a group of feminist lawyers to challenge New York State's abortion law. And that actually was credited with helping expand abortion rights the following year. In 1969, she helped represent 21 Black Panthers who were on trial in Manhattan for a conspiracy to commit bombings. And they were eventually acquitted. And during the trial, she would take them to these like snooty white restaurants to eat where they weren't technically allowed and it would like cause a stir like a media stir of like oh how dare they you know she's like fuck you guys um please bring me my food in 1971 she founded the feminist party which is who nominated congresswoman shirley chisholm for president in 1972 she was one of the instigators of the miss america pageant protest which we talked about last time Mm -hmm. she also organized a pn in harvard yard in 1973 to protest the lack of women's bathrooms. So then, you know, I had to get into what happened what at this pee in. I mean, I think we all know. Well, so the, the, Har- <laughs> the Harvard Crimson um, newspaper or magazine has an article about it that starts out to pee or not to pee. That is the question. And apparently what had happened was Harvard didn't allow women to take entrance exams for admission until 1973. Did mm. you know that? And that they had to take their exams in this lecture hall that at the time had no women's restrooms. And so if they had to use the bathroom during the test, they had to run across the street to this other building. But of course, that would take them way more time to go to the bathroom Mm -hmm. than the men. And so they they reach out to Flo and she's like, I'm there, even though it was like a relatively smaller protest. She shows Mm -hmm. up for everybody. So they um, lined up at the top of these stairs and then had jars of some kind of yellow liquid and they poured them down the steps like really ceremoniously and said like if it's if you still don't have bathrooms for women next year we're coming back and we'll do the real thing on these stairs and then right after that uh, um action she took part in the toilet bowl caravan where protesters rode from san francisco to hollywood to demonstrate against hollywood's representations of women they wanted them to quote flush the Hollywood female role games down the drain. So she was just like in ev- in it everywhere, all yeah. over. She's really good friends with Gloria Steinem. Um, Gloria Steinem in her, in an obituary for her, remembered that she would go on these lecture circuits and she said she would always talk first because no one would want to follow Flo. She was just like the best speaker mm-hmm. ever. And that one guy was heckling them and stood up and said, are you lesbians? And then Flo would say, are you my alternative? is amazing amen to that (laughs) and then Gloria Steinem said she understood what Emma Goldman understood there has to be laughter and fun at the revolution or it isn't a revolution Um, and then she passed away in 2000 and she in her autobiography she says I'm just a loudmouth middle-aged color lady with a fused spine and three feet of intestines missing and a lot of people think i'm crazy maybe you do too but i never stop to wonder why i'm not like other people the mystery to me is why more people aren't like me mm. love Isn't it that great yeah you know. i love it That's the amazing. last person i want to talk about and then maybe next mm-hmm. time um i i looked up more about the third world women's alliance and also the Combahee River Collective, which mm-hmm. she mentions, they're super fascinating. But the last person I wanted to talk about was Elaine Brown, who um, who she the, who Jennifer Nelson writes about a little bit as one of the Black Panther Party leaders. Do you remember that part? Um, yeah, where she kind of takes over for Huey Newton. So she, 
Elaine Brown was born in North Philadelphia. <laughs> I almost went into my Fresh Prince of Bel Air. So yeah. Can you can you say all the lyrics to that song? You would have to. It's start West me, Philadelphia. Yes. I know, but in West Philadelphia, born and raised on a playground. As you know, I, everyone Most who's listening days. right now, yeah, <laughs> chilling out, Max and relaxing, all cool. You, everybody knows all of it. It's going to be in your head now the rest of the day. Um, so she goes to this predominantly white girls' school, goes to Temple, um, gets involved uh, in some activism, and then moves to L.A. She wanted to be a songwriter and then gets involved in the Black Power movement, um, basically like the mid-1960s. And she ends up writing a song called The Meeting, which becomes the party's anthem. It's a dedication to Eldridge Cleaver. Um, mm. And it's like this whole album of songs that she put together. Actually, I listened to a bunch of it earlier and it's like really like haunting. I don't know how else to describe it. It's like uh, almost like a classical music mixed with folk music a little bit. It was really interesting and it didn't, make very much money it wasn't very popular in the article i read said it was because brown didn't have quote a black sound but it's you know it wasn't like soul music it wasn't um you know like funk it was Mm -hmm. its own kind of thing but the lyrics are all about black power black pride so at as the black the black panthers were founded in oakland and they were really they had this 10 point program and it was really like look, the state is never going to take care of us. They're not interested in black people. We're going to, we have to do it for ourselves. And then the U S government, the FBI was spying on them. There was a lot of um, like threats made to them and they end up assassinating Fred Hampton. Did you see that movie that just came out about that? Mm -mm. Fred Hampton was the black Panther leader in Chicago. Um, The black, black Judas and the Messiah. Oh, okay. Um, it's supposed to be good. I haven't seen it yet, but anyway, he's murdered in his bed by the police. It's this like horrible, like clearly targeted for their activism assassination by the Chicago police. Um, and then a lot of other Black Panther members are getting arrested. And so like the leadership, which initially was very male and very masculine is basically getting like weeded out by the state, by the police. And so a lot of women are, are rising into the ranks to take over these leadership roles. Yeah. Elaine Brown um, started out and she was friends with Huey Newton. He encouraged her to run for the Oakland city council in the early seventies. She did, but she didn't win. And then in 1974, Huey Newton, one of the leaders of the black Panther party um, fled to Cuba to avoid being arrested, that was a common thing to do. Um, several leaders did this. And so he appoints her to be the chairwoman of the Black Panther Party. And she was sure. for three years. She was really focused on electoral politics and community outreach programs. Um, she was less interested in like the militancy strategies. So she had initiatives like a free health clinic, testing for sickle cell anemia, free ambulance, free shoes to people, prisoner support facilities, free breakfast for kids, elementary school called the Black Panther Liberation School, a group called Seniors Against a Fearful Environment that was like protecting elders in the community, a program for teens, a daycare, like everything, like this, everything we've been reading about, like this holistic program. Mm -hmm. Um, But the once Newton came back from Cuba, a lot of the Black men in the organization come complaining to him 
that like the women have taken over and they're, you know, they're like doing all this stuff that we, we want to be more militant. Mm -hmm. And actually, um, Elaine Brown reported that some of the male membership beat Regina Davis, who was one of the administrators at the elementary school for reprimanding a male coworker and that Huey Newton took the side of the men. And so Elaine Brown was like, fuck you. I'm out and left the party and went to LA. And then basically the party dwindled in numbers and most of the programs in school shut down by the 1980s. And certainly there were absolutely men that thought this was bad. And like, we're a hundred percent pro women being in leadership, but there were enough men that made it an issue. And according to Elaine Brown, she said a woman in the black power movement was considered at best irrelevant. A woman asserting herself was a pariah. If a black woman assumed a role of leadership, she was said to be eroding black manhood to be hindering the progress of the black race. Um, she was an enemy of the black people. And so then she leaves the party, but stays super committed to these politics. She went to law school. She also moves to France. Um, she moved back to the U S in 1996 and, is now, I think she's still based in Atlanta. She's still living and she's done a whole bunch of work. Like there's a nonprofit that she founded to help black children in poverty. She um, works with this group, Mothers Advocate, Advocating Juvenile Justice. She has founded an organization to advocate for incarcerated youth who are being tried as adults in Georgia, which is a huge problem. Yep. She in particular wrote a book called The Condemnation of Little B, which examines the real life case of Michael Lewis, who received a life sentence at 14 years old for a murder that she is convinced he did not commit. And it's, it sounded like a book um, similar to Brian Stevenson's book. Oh yeah. Um, Just mercy. Just mercy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like they're involved in the same kinds of things in 2007. She was a presidential nominee for the green party focused on livable wages, free healthcare, public education, affordable housing and environmental improvement. But she resigned later that year because in her she said that the Green Party was, quote, whites who had no intention of using the ballot to actualize real social progress. Hey, Kristen Sinema, mm -hmm. I'm looking at you. I mean, there's a lot. It's not just Kristen Sinema, yeah. but um, <laughs> sadly. Anyway, super, super fascinating. There's so many other women, but um, the two groups that I'll tell you a little bit more about next time are the Third World Women's Alliance and the Combahee River Collective. Super, super interesting. And then we'll learn mm -hmm. more about the Young Lords right. and Puerto Rican Women's um, involvement in reproductive rights. Awesome. It's good to be Fine. back. And let's do an I episode know. next week too. So we can, okay. um, channel some rage so and we, we love rant. hearing. Yeah. We love hearing <laughs> from listeners. If there's anything that you want us to look into or that you want us to address, um, yeah, send us an email. Yeah. I'm Katie at our dirty laundry podcast.com. K A T Y. And Mandy and Mandy. Y. We made yeah. it easy, both wise. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, parents. Um, don't forget to subscribe, to like, to share. Yeah. We are share are back in action, and um, we're still kicking. So we're not. Yeah, we've got we've got years worth of material. Don't worry, we're That's not going right. anywhere. We're not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right, we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Have a good week.